We're going to be discussing Jesus walking on the water this evening. And uh, I do invite your comments. I just need you to raise your hand real high if you want to contribute. And if you do, I will hear what you say and I will repeat it so that everybody else can hear it as well. But I welcome your comments if you'd like to participate. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the accounts. There are four, excuse me, three accounts that we're going to be looking at this evening that record this event. Beginning with Matthew 14, and Kyle always likes to read the scriptures, and I do too, so let's go ahead and do that. Starting in Matthew 14, verse 22, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the midst of the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now on the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Let's go to Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of Bethsa to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid, or do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. And then the last is from John chapter 6, beginning in verse, well it says 16. Let's start with verse 15. John 6, beginning in verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the, other, over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Okay, so let's go ahead and begin with just a little bit of, of, uh, of background here. Kyle touched on this last week, but we will again here this evening. Make sure my phone is turned off. 
we go back to Matthew 14 and Mark chapter 6, we see that uh, John has been beheaded. And of course, that was, would have been very distressing to Jesus. Jesus wanted to get away from the crowds for a while, as we see in Matthew 14 and verse 13. But the people followed him. And wouldn't you? He was doing something that people had not seen before, and people were walking who had not walked before, people were seeing who had not seen, and all these other things that Jesus was doing. So they continued to follow him so they couldn't even rest. In fact, it was even affecting the disciples, as we'll see a little bit later as well. But Jesus needed time to get away because of the great uh, distress that this would have been to him for John being beheaded as he was. Also in this context, we, as we talked about last week, the 5,000 were miraculously fed. Now, if you look in John's account, let's go back to John chapter 6. You may already be there. John goes into a little bit more detail. John's actually the shortest of the three who writes about the walking on the water. But the immediate, the event immediately before that and then afterwards, he goes into greater detail about. Remember in John 6.15, which we read just a moment ago, John tells a little bit more about the crowd that was there and was fed of the 5,000 people. And the crowd, apparently, according to John 6 and 15, wanted to force Jesus to make him king. And as you read on, we're going to come back to this just a little bit later and get us some more detail in John 6. But not only did they want him to be king, and it's, it's at that point that he left and got away and got his disciples away, the ones in the boat at least got away for the time being. When he comes back, or not when he comes back, but when he's landed and the people that follow him, then there's this lengthy discussion throughout the rest of John 6 about what they were there for. And it seems like most of those people in that crowd in John 6 were there because they got a free meal. And they reminded Jesus of how God, through Moses, had fed the Israelites in the wilderness with manna from above, and they wanted the same thing. And so we'll talk about that as we get a little bit deeper into the lesson. Now, the event occurred... on the Sea of Galilee. Let's just talk briefly about the Sea of Galilee. And again, Kyle may have already done this, but we'll just refresh our memory. The Sea of Galilee is about 64 square miles around. Um, according to the size of Lake Lanier, according to the Gwinnett County um, website, that means that this was about uh, half the length of Lake Lanier. Give you an idea of how big it was, the size it was. So it was 13 miles from northern shore to southern shore. It was seven miles from the east to the west at its widest point. There's a picture of it in the background. There's another picture of the Sea of Galilee. It was 141 feet deep at its deepest point. I don't know what kind of fish you'd catch out there, Jack, but 141 feet, there's probably something down there. This is also referred to in the Bible by various other names. It's called the Sea of Tiberias, the Lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Chinnereth, and the Sea of Chinneroth. Now, to show you on the map where it's located, it was, uh, of course, north of, of Judea, north of Jerusalem. But I read this interesting comment, of course, it's still there today. I read this interesting comment from International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. This uh, author presents some very lovely word pictures. This was very clearly a beautiful area of the country. Uh, you remember the song? Maybe you hadn't sung it very much, but I remember it from my youth. Uh, there is a sea. Everybody remember, the, everybody heard that song, the hymn in your book? Okay. And it's got three verses. The first verse talks about a sea that, that gives. It's just talking about the Sea of Galilee. The second verse talks about a sea that only takes. 
at the other end of the river from the Sea of Galilee down at the southern end is the Dead Sea. And it's dead because it doesn't give anything back. Everything just dies in there. And then the third verse is, what shall it be for you or me? Are we going to be like the giving sea or the taking sea? It's a great hymn. But anyway, here's what he has to say about this. I'm going to read just a little bit from International Standard Bible Encyclopedia describing the Sea of Galilee. The writer says, seen from the mountains, the broad sheet appears a beautiful blue so that in the season of greenery, it is no exaggeration to describe it as a sapphire in a setting of emerald. It lights up the landscape as the eye does the human face. It is often spoken of as the eye of Galilee. To one descending from Mount Tabor and approaching the edge of the great hollow on a bright spring day, when the land has already assumed its fairest garments, the view of the sea as it breaks upon the vision in almost its whole extent is one never to be forgotten. The mountains on the east and on the west rise to about 2,000 feet. The heights of Naphtali piled up in the north seem to culminate only in the snowy summit of Great Hermon. If the waters are still, the shining splendors of the mountain may be seen mirrored in the blue depths. Around the greater part of the lake there is a broad pebbly beach with a sprinkling of small shells, so numerous as to cause a white glister in the sunlight. Doesn't that sound like a pretty place to look at? But then he says this a little bit later. He says the position of the lake or the Sea of Galilee makes it liable to sudden storms. The cool air from the uplands rushing down the gorges with great violence and tossing the waters in tumultuous billows. Such storms are fairly frequent, and as they are attended with danger to small craft, the boatmen are constantly on the alert. Save in very settled conditions, they will not venture far from the shore. Occasionally, however, tempests break over the lake in which a boat could hardly live. So now there's our setting for this event recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John. Here I've got a summary just basically summing up the comparison of the three gospel accounts. We won't go into great detail about those. Uh, there's, there's really no, I know people try to get, uh, try to find contradictions. Some people like to try to find contradictions in the Word of God. Of course, they fail every time, but they try to find contradictions, especially in a case like this where there are three different writers writing about a particular event. But there are no contradictions in these, as you would see if you would look at each of those individually. But again, we don't have time, won't have time to cover all those. So let me just show you that part there, the summary of the three, the setting. He said, I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. He sent the crowds away. 5,000 has just been fed. He sent the crowds away. They're going to the other side. They're going to Gennesaret. Or are they going to Bethsaida? Or are they going toward Capernaum? Well, they're all in the same area. Bethsaida is a suburb of Capernaum. How many times do you tell people, people ask you where you live, somebody lives out in, in uh, Nevada, and they say, well, where do you live? And you say, oh, I live in Atlanta. Well, no, you don't. You live in Decula, you live in Sugar Hill, you live in Beaufort or whatever. You live in a suburb, but you say you live in Atlanta. Well, that's the same thing as the writer saying they were going to Capernaum. And Gennesaret is the, the larger area encompassing Capernaum and Bethsaida, so there's no contradiction there. Uh, Jesus compelled the disciples to get into the boat. Jesus immediately had them get into the boat, and they went into the boat. Jesus went to the mountain to pray. The boat was a long distance from land. This, he walked out to them in the fourth watch of the night, which would have been, been about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And it says, Matthew says, the boat was battered by the winds because the winds were contrary. 
Uh, Jesus came walking on the sea, terrified. The apostles said, it's a ghost. They were terrified. They were frightened. Jesus said, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Matthew, Mark's account. John's account as well. The wind stopped when Jesus got into the boat, according to Matthew and according to Mark. John's account says that immediately they got to land when Jesus got in. And then finally, the response of those in the boat, the disciples worshiped, saying, you are truly God's son. And Mark's account says they were astonished, and we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. And then John's account just simply says they were willing to take him into the boat. So with that in mind, let's talk about the main figures in the event. I don't want to call it a story, um, because I don't want people to misunderstand and think we're talking about something that's been made up. Uh, the event in Jesus' life while he was here in the flesh on earth. The main figures, we've got three that we're going to look at. First of all, we, of course, begin with Jesus. As we said earlier, he had tried earlier to get away because he needed time by himself with his father. And this time he was successful. Again, we think about the burden that had been on his mind with John being murdered. But here's something else, too. We touched on John 6:15. When Jesus therefore perceived they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. As I looked at that, I wondered, is that an additional temptation from Satan? You remember back in Matthew chapter 4, that if you'd like to look there with me, let's look at when Jesus had that face-to-face -face confrontation with, with Satan in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4. Particularly, I want to look at verse 8 and verse 9. The Bible says, The devil took him into an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and said unto him, All these things will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said, Get hence, Satan, get away from me, Satan. It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, him only shalt thou serve. But it made me think of that when I read John 6 and verse 15, that there were those who wanted to force Jesus to be king. Well, what kind of king were they talking about? Were they thinking spiritually? Or were they thinking physically? Well, they were thinking, and we'll see that when we come back to John 6 in just a little bit, they were thinking of physical king. So as I looked at that, I wondered, is that another temptation that Satan was putting before him? Because he had already told him he would make him ruler over all creation, over all, uh, all these things, which, of course, Satan knew he already was anyway. But he tried to tempt him with that, and it seems like he was trying to do the same thing here. Jesus had had his private time. He had gone and, and prayed to the Father by himself. We have three other occasions of that recorded. In Mark 1 and verse 35, it says that long before daybreak, Jesus went to a solitary place to pray. In Luke 5 and verse 16, it says Jesus withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. And then Luke 6, 12 says Jesus went to a mountain and prayed all night. So he'd had his private time with the Father, and now he looks and he sees the disciples in the boat. They had been sent off in boat or ship, whichever you choose. Um, there's apparently not a lot of difference between the, uh, the two terms. But he sees the disciples in the boat straining to row in the midst of the storm. Now in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 6 and verse 47, he uses the word evening. The word translated evening actually could refer to two different times, two two periods of time, late afternoon and early evening. One was from 3 to 6 p.m., the other was from 6 p.m. to midnight. We know from Matthew 14 and verse 15 that when the events that led up to feeding the 5,000 began, 
Matthew says it was already evening time. So when they started feeding the 5,000, it was already around 3 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock in the afternoon. Then in Matthew 14 and verse 23, Matthew says it was evening when Jesus went to pray. Again, no contradiction. It's just later in the evening. Now he's talking about between 6 p.m. and midnight. So let's do a little math here. Everybody ready for some math? Knowing that evening could represent the early evening, 3 to 6 o'clock, or the late from 6 o'clock to midnight, and knowing that the 3 to 6 o'clock period had already passed from the feeding of the 5,000, we can conclude the disciples got into the boat probably sometime after 6 p.m. Now John says in John 6 and verse 17 that it was dark, so that may give us a little more clue as to when it might have been. But here's the significance of that. You know, why does it matter what time they got into the boat? Here's the significance of it. The disciples were in the boat between 6 p.m. and midnight, most likely. Jesus came to them in the fourth watch of the night, Mark 6:48. That would have been around 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. They had been in Tiberias. See if you can see that on the map. Down in the southwest area there. I can't see it. Myself. Well, there it is up there. Yeah, down in the southwest corner where it says Tiberias. They had been there. And now they were heading up to the northern part of the shore, northern part of the sea. But it was only about five and a half miles between the two places. When Jesus came to them, John 6 and verse 19, they had only gone about three or four miles. So doing the math, depending on the exact time the disciples left Tiberias by boat, and the exact time that they saw Jesus walking on the water, they could have been rowing at a minimum for between four hours and six hours. Now, that means their speed might have been maybe about half a mile to a mile per hour at the most. And I know knots is the proper term, but I don't know how to to convert those into knots. Uh, I'm not a a rower. Maybe some of you have rowed a lot of boats. I did look it up because the internet, if it's on the internet, it's true. But I did look it up and a couple of places suggested that the average person might be able to row about two miles per hour. Does that sound right, Bob? Does that work for you? Okay. So about, maybe about two miles per hour. What we see what's happening here is that they're rowing probably about a half mile per hour or less. Now why? Because that's how strong the storm was. This was not a significant, insignificant little pop-up shower. This was a serious storm that was occurring. And that storm was even occurring while Jesus was walking toward them. Because we remember from Matthew 14 and verse 30, when Jesus said, it's I, be not afraid. Peter said, if it's you, let me come to you. And he started to walk out. He started to walk on the water and says he looked around and the winds were boisterous. So the the storm was still going on. So apparently it had been going on all night long. Now, if you look in Matthew's account in Matthew 14, 25, and then Mark's account in Mark 6 and verse 48, you see that uh, very matter-of-factly, the inspired writers say he was walking on the sea. Just very plainly, clearly said that. Now, Mark adds this, which is kind of an unusual phrase. Mark adds in Mark 6, 48, that he was walking toward them, and he would have passed by them. Other versions say, that's the King James, 
other versions say he intended to or meant to pass by them. And those are actually more accurate translations. So what we have here is a situation where the Bible says that Jesus is walking on the water in the storm. He's walking toward the boat, but he's not heading into the boat. He's going past them. He intended to go past them. Now, does that make you wonder why? Anybody have some thoughts? Why would Jesus intend pur purposely to pass by the boat filled with men who were his disciples? Any thoughts? Good, you had the same thoughts I did. No, there's, there's a couple of things that came to my mind about this anyway. Why would he intentionally pass by them? The first thing that I thought of is, was this a test of their faith? Let's go back to John 6. We'll, again, we'll come back here some more throughout the lesson. But let's go back to John chapter 6. And we won't take the time to read this, but if you wanted to read this, you could read all of John 6 all the way to the very end because this gives us an idea of the situation in which Jesus and the disciples, or Jesus and the apostles, found themselves uh, just prior to and immediately after this walking on the water. So in John chapter 6, we found, find that the, uh, Jesus and the, those in the boat had gotten to the other side and the people pursued them. They found they, they couldn't find Jesus. And so they pursued until they got there and they found where he was. But look what Jesus says in John 6 and verse 26. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. So what did they have in mind? What did they want from Jesus? Well, as you read on, they're saying, verse 30, What sign do you show that we may see and believe you? What do you work? What dost thou work, the King James says. Our fathers ate manna in the deserts. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, verse 32, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. This is one of the many occasions in John's gospel where we see John contrasting the people thinking on a physical plane and Jesus thinking on a spiritual plane because he's just talking about the bread, the true bread, which the Father would give from heaven. Verse 34, they said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Well, what were they thinking of? Well, we're going to get some manna just like the Israelites did. God's going to feed us. We just have to follow this man. He's going to feed us. And then it got a little difficult for them. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and, and we'll talk about that phrase, I am, in just a little bit too. He says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. And as he goes on in more in depth than that, eventually he says this in verse 53, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Now, we come down to verse 60. 
Many therefore of his, his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying, who can hear it? Verse 66, from that time many of the disciples went back and walked no more with him. Okay, so my question initially was, why would Jesus intentionally pass by the boat in the storm with the disciples crying out? My first suggestion was, is this a test of their faith? Because they've already gotten, or Jesus has already gotten an idea of the level of the faith of some of the people who were in that crowd of the 5,000 who were fed. When they meet up again on the other side of the sea, he sees what they were all about. Is it possible that he's checking to see what kind of faith do the ones in the boat have? And we would presume that the, all the apostles were in that boat. So perhaps he's testing their faith. Some said in regard to this, in regard to the question, why would he intentionally pass them by? Some said it only appeared that he would pass them by, but the text doesn't say that. But perhaps even more so, the answer to this question, why did Jesus intentionally pass them by? Or why was he intention, intended to pass them by? Perhaps the answer to that question could be answered in the answer to this question. Why was he walking on the water in the midst of a storm in the first place? Was it just so that he could save the disciples in the boat? Or was there a bigger purpose here? And the saving of the disciples was a side benefit from the bigger purpose. Could it be that the purpose of this miracle was to further demonstrate the deity of Jesus? Is this not a case of the creator controlling his creation and bending it to his will. Now in Colossians chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me, in verses 16 and 17, speaking of Jesus, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Is this not a case of the creator, the word, the eternal word, controlling his creation and bending to his will? Is this not a case of the creator of the laws and boundaries he placed on his creation, suspending those laws and boundaries for his purposes? I would contend that the purpose of Jesus, in my judgment anyway, the purpose of Jesus walking on the water was to demonstrate his power as God over the creation. Why did they need to see that? Well, when we come toward the end of Mark's account, Mark says they didn't understand the loaves because their hearts were hardened. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But why did Jesus need to, to demonstrate his power over his creation? Because these were men who still were lacking in their faith, and they needed to see that in him. So 
more about Jesus, the main figure, just a few other lessons that we can gain from the text. The first is this, that Jesus showed compassion by identifying himself and calming the fears of the disciples. They thought the figure coming in their direction was a spirit. We'll have more to say about that as well. But after they cried out, both Mark and Matthew say that Jesus immediately identified himself. So he showed compassion by identifying himself and calming the fears of the disciples. Jesus showed compassion by calming the storm when he got into the boat. And again, John 6, 21 says he immediately got them to their destination. Jesus again demonstrated his deity and his power over his creation by stopping the storm. Now, this account doesn't go into that much detail, but in the other occasion where he calmed the storm where he was in the boat, such as in uh, Matthew chapter 8, it says that when he spoke, that the sea became calm. And I haven't been out on, on the seas a whole lot. I'm not a huge water person. But it seems to me like when a big storm comes up, enough, a storm strong enough that it took men uh, twice as long to row at half the speed that they were accustomed to, it seems to me like when that storm would be over, it would take a while for those waves to stop rustling around out there, right? But in that previous occasion of Jesus calming the storm when he was inside the ship, the Bible says the waters became calm. So when Jesus spoke, the storm not only stopped, but the waters became calm. It doesn't say this in this text, but we know that did happen in the previous uh, account of, this, of uh, him stopping the storm in the waters. Jesus again demonstrated his deity and power over his creation by calming the storm. More lessons. How about this? Hearing Jesus' voice. Now again, they see this specter coming in their direction. And they don't know what it is. Not, not, not to say who it is, but they didn't even know what it was. And so they cried out. And immediately, Jesus speaks, it is I, be of good cheer, do not be afraid. Well, how do they know who I is? Could it be, and again, I'm speculating somewhat here, but could it be that it's because they recognized his voice? And when I say that, that's the conclusion I come to. When I say that, when I think of that, that made me think of John 10 and verse 4, where we read about the good shepherd. What about the sheep of the good she of the shepherd? The sheep of the shepherd know what? They know their master's voice. So that made me think of that. Did they just recognize Jesus just by his voice? Because it was still dark and stormy out there. So perhaps that was the case. Again, another lesson we get is Jesus used this as a teaching opportunity. He didn't miss an opportunity to teach, did he? Every time that something came up, it seemed like he was making application of that so that people could learn something from it, which is a good thing for us to continue to do as well. The Word of God is just as quick and powerful as it was when it was written. And then another point we make here is the fact that another miracle in this event would be the fact that even though Jesus was miles away from them, he was able to see that they were in trouble. Yes, Alan. Okay, as, 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 difficult as, it, as difficult as it was for them to row, that Jesus caught up to them. That's what you're saying. Right, that's a good point, Alan. Showed again his, his 
superiority over the storm, his control of the storm. That's a good point. Anybody else want to add anything to what we said so far? Just about Jesus' role in this. Okay, let's talk about the next figure, or figures actually, but we'll count them all as one in a singular sense. That would be the disciples in the boat. They needed to get away. Mark 6 and verse 31 says they had so much going on that they did not even have time to eat. So they were highly stressed themselves. Mark 6, 45, after the 5,000 were said, were fed, Jesus constrained or insisted that they get into the boat. Now, we're not given a roster of who all was on the boat. We know Peter was on there, obviously. Uh, we know Philip and Andrew were there in the feeding of the 5,000, John 6, verses 7 and 8. So they likely would have been there. And I think it's safe to assume that all the apostles were on there. Was it just the apostles? I don't know. Because I don't know how big the boat was. But we do know that there were those at least in the boat. These disciples were already physically and emotionally strained. Now add to that the fact that they had been rowing for hours, making very little headway on a trip that typically would have been fairly easy to make. Add to that the fact that the winds, the Bible says, were boisterous and the sky was dark. And then in the midst of all this, with all this strain and stress they've already been under, the dark skies, the blustery winds, in the midst of all that, here comes something out of nowhere. They don't know what it is. But whatever it is, it's not swimming toward them. It's not jumping out of the sea toward them. It's not swooping down from the air toward them. It's not even another boat. Whatever this is that's coming toward them is defying gravity by walking on the surface of the sea. So what did they conclude? It's a ghost. It's a spirit or it's a ghost. The word typically translated spirit is, is the Greek word pneuma. Uh, this is the word uh, phantasma. You've heard of a phantasm. We use the English word phantasm, the phantasma, which is an appearance or an apparition. And Matthew and Mark in these uh, account, their accounts of this event are the only two times that word is used in the New Testament. They thought it was some kind of a ghost. But that's not all they concluded. They also concluded that this apparition was going to harm them. Matthew 14 and verse 26 says they cried out or they screamed for fear. The word fear is the word phobos, phobia where we get our word phobia. I mean, in this context, it means terror. They were terrified. In Mark 6 and verse 49, Mark uses the same word for cried out that Matthew used, but he adds the prefix ana, the Greek word ana, which means up. So Matthew says that they screamed out. Mark gets a little bit more specific and says they screamed up. They're crying out to God. Kind of reminds you about the uh, people in the boat with Jonah, doesn't it? when they were in the midst of the storm and they were all crying out to their gods. They were crying up, crying out to their gods. Well, that's what these were doing. But they were crying out to Jehovah God. They supposed it was a spirit of a ghost or a ghost. They did not know what it was. They were troubled. A word which means, Mark 6, verse 50, to strike one's spirit with fear or dread. Okay, I think we can all understand that. I, I'm in total agreement that I would have been at least that scared, if not more so. Then the disciples heard a voice coming from that which they supposed had been an apparition. The voice said this. He said, be of good cheer. And Mark's account says, don't be afraid. 
but he uses a three words in English, but a two-word phrase in Greek, which is an important phrase, especially as we see it in the Gospel of John. And it's the Greek two-word ego eimi, which means I, I am. It's an emphasis. It's used sometimes in the scriptures, in the New Testament, just to emphasize who it is. I, I am. But it's also given a deeper meaning by Jesus when he uses it to apply to himself. I, I am. Now, what's the significance of that? If you go back, and you've, I know you've probably heard this before, but let me just go back through this because this is a critical. When you remember, John is the one who uses these two words together the most in reference to Jesus. And remember John's purpose for writing his gospel? He said, these are written that you might believe in him. But you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, when Moses is standing before God at the burning bush, and Moses is being commissioned by God to go out and deliver his people from Egyptian bondage. And Moses is trying to think, okay, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. So starting out with this, Lord, who should I say sent me? And the Lord's response is, tell them, I am who I am has sent you. Now in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that is the two words, ego and me, I, I am. Jehovah God to Moses identified himself as the I am, or I, I am. Again, when you read the Gospel of John, you will find Jesus using that to apply to himself, such as in uh, John 8 and verse 58, where Jesus said, before Abraham was, I, I am. So what's he doing? He's very clearly identifying himself as deity, as God. And so... The fact that he uses this term when the disciples cry out to him, he says, I, I am, is here. Now maybe it was his voice, or maybe it was that. The I am is with me. The I am is in our presence. It's very powerful when you think about that for just a little bit. We're going to talk about Peter in a few minutes, but continuing on with these figures, or this second figure, the disciples in the boat. The wind stopped. They immediately came to land, John says. Let's talk about their response. In Matthew's account, Matthew 14, 33, it says they worship Jesus and confess their faith that he is the Son of God. Now let's go back to what Mark says. This is back in Mark chapter 6, verse 51 and verse 52. Mark says, when he went up into them into the ship and the wind ceased, he went up into them into the ship and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, and the word the miracle is in italics, which means it's not in the original text, it was supplied by the translators. So they did not consider the loaves, is what he's saying, for their heart was hardened. I think the New American Standard says they did not have insight regarding the loaves. Other versions say they did not understand the loaves. Okay. They were utterly astonished, verse 52. Why? Or excuse me, in the New American Standard, they were utterly astonished. Why? Verse 52, because they didn't understand the loaves, which causes me again to ask a question. 
What did they not understand about the loaves? 5,000 people were miraculously fed. What did they not understand about that? So let's go back to John 6 again. And remember verse 15 again. That many in the crowd wanted to force him to be a king. Enforcing or wanting to force Jesus to be the king, some of the people who were there demonstrated they did not recognize the deity of Jesus. Some of the people in that crowd saw only an earthly king, somebody who could give them free food. There were many people in that crowd, and many of them were called his disciples. There were many people in that crowd who had an extremely short-sighted view of who Jesus was and is. And what he came to earth to do. Yes, Kurt. And then still do. Right, still do. Right. Good point. So the, the, the fact that there's the, the spiritual battle continuing to rage, as it does today even, and the fact that um, uh, we should be desirous of doing God's will, just that's what Jesus came to do. Uh, he said, my meat is to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so those are good points. Now, let's get back to this setting in John chapter 6. Again, remembering where, when Jesus and the disciples who were in the boat left Tiberias they had been in this crowd where they had just fed 5,000 people 
they get across the Sea of Galilee up to the northern section and the people begin to looking for Jesus and they eventually get in their boats and they follow up there and they get back there and that's when the rest of John chapter 6 occurs that, co that conversation occurs they showed and perhaps even some in the boat thought this too again they showed an extremely short sighted view of Jesus remember in Luke chapter 12 there was a man who came to Jesus and said I want you to settle a financial disagreement with, for me what would you call that? Would you call that short-sighted? I believe so. That's not what he came to do. And he made that clear as he went on in that context. Furthermore, when it says, Why did they, what did they not understand about it? Again, I've just touched on that. But furthermore, Mark says their heart, were, their heart was hardened. Now, your version might say hearts, but it is actually singular. So if you've got an S on there, you can... Well, I don't know which version you're using, maybe the manuscripts they went from had hearts, but the, in the King James Version, the word heart is singular. In essence, when he talks about their heart was hardened, the one talking about the disciples in the boat, it was as though they were all together of one mind and of one heart, hardened, so that they could not grasp the meaning of the loaves. The word hardened means to cover with a thick skin, to harden by covering with a callus. Metaphorically, to grow hard, callous, become dull, or lose the power of understanding. They had not yet fully grasped who Jesus was and is. They needed more convincing, hence the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. Now, here's a side lesson for you. Apostles were in that boat, and they needed convincing still that this was the Christ, the Son of the living God. You remember, of those apostles... Go all the way back to John chapter 1 and verse 41. One of them was Andrew, who said, We have found the Christ. Very strongly said that to his brother. John 1 and verse 45, Philip, another of the apostles, says, We have found the one. Very confident. We have found the one spoken of by Moses and the prophets. And yet another, Nathaniel, or some call him Bartholomew, say that's the same as Bartholomew. In John 1 and verse 49, said to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Now here you have some bold declarations from disciples, more specifically apostles. And now we raise the question here in this event of Jesus walking on the water. What did they not understand? Why did they need to see Jesus walking on the water? Why did they need more proof of the deity of Jesus? Why were their hearts hardened? Some commentators suggested that in saying that Jesus insisted or compelled or made the disciples get into the boat and get away from shore, some suggested it was because of the influence that they were around and Jesus wanted to separate them from that influence that we saw in John chapter 6, where the people were just following for physical satisfaction that he wanted them out of there. Perhaps so. But here's my point. Here are men who had not too far prior to this very confidently affirmed he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, he is the one spoken of by Moses and the prophets. 
but yet their hearts were hardened, even though they were in the constant presence of Jesus. The lesson for me is, and I hope for you too, is a reminder to be ever vigilant in building and, mar and maintaining our faith. We can't ever stop building our faith. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We can't ever stop. We can't ever be satisfied. These were apostles who were influenced by the world and needed a reminder, apparently, of who Jesus was and who Jesus is and what his mission was. So let's get to the third figure here. And of course, this is Peter. And I'm going to, I'm going to admit this to you. I think I see Peter through my own weak faith. Because my immediate response when I read about Peter saying, Lord, if it's you, let me come to you. Jesus says, come, and he starts getting out. How many other of the people in the boat got out? We're not told any of them did. And Peter actually took some steps on the water. He didn't just, he wasn't bluffing. He stepped over the edge of the boat, and he stepped on the water, and he stood. How many steps did he take? I don't know. We're not told. Through my own weak faith, I, I want to applaud Peter and say, well, you're a man of great faith. I don't think I would have had the courage to do what you did. But Jesus, knowing the hearts of men, John 2 and verse 25, knowing the challenges these disciples would face would become quite intense Jesus knew that he needed more from his disciples than just a few steps. Jesus, for his mission to be carried out as he intended to be carried out, knew that he needed complete trust and surrender if that work was going to be completed or carried out. It's not completed, not by a long shot. Jesus needed complete trust and surrender. So Jesus' response is, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And again, we wonder, well, that seems kind of harsh, Lord. He showed some, some uh, courage there stepping out. Again, that's me saying that. But looking at what Jesus, where Jesus was and him knowing what's in man and him knowing what they had already been through and were going to go through, he says, I've got to have more than that. I've got to have more than that. He needed complete trust and surrender for their own benefit. Remember in Luke 22 and verse 31, in the, uh, the shadow of Gethsemane, that Jesus said to Peter and the other apostles who were around, he said, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. Now the word you is plural, so he's talking to all those who were there in front of him at that point. And then he speaks to Peter specifically in the next verse. He said, Peter... I have prayed for you. And then he says, when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. So Peter had a particular task before him. Not only would, as we see, Peter be the one who would take the leadership role on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, 
But Peter would be the one who would be needing to encourage his brethren. Was Peter perfect? No, we know he wasn't. Galatians chapter 2. See, that's what Jesus needed in his followers. He needed those who were willing to go more, just, more than just a few steps with him. He needed more than just, Lord, I'll follow you as long as I get what I want. He needed individuals who were going to commit themselves, heart, soul, and mind, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 38. And that's who he's still looking for today, isn't it? I suggest that the reason Jesus rebuked Peter for his doubt and called him one of little faith is a lesson not just for Peter, but for the others who were in the boat, as well as for all of us. I seriously doubt, and I don't know you. I don't know every aspect of your life, just like you don't know me. But I seriously doubt that any one of us can stand up and say, I've got all the faith I need. I remember knocking on a door one time down in South Georgia as we were going around town knocking on doors and a fellow came to the door and we asked the question, would you like to know more about the Bible? He said, no, I already know enough. He was a denominational preacher. He already knew enough. Can any of us say, well, I have enough faith. I don't need any more. I'm strong, as, strong enough as it is. I'll tell you one thing. The faith that you're building now is a faith that will benefit you down the road. It's benefiting you now, but it will benefit you down the road. When things get tough, when loved ones pass, when finances fail, when difficulties in family come, when difficulties at work come, when difficulties of all kinds come, you know what you keep going back to? You keep going back to, to God. You keep going back to lean on your faith. I really pity the person who doesn't have that, don't you? That's what Jesus was looking for, that kind of faith that was not going to quit and not ever going to be satisfied. So I'm like Kyle this week, and I'm done five minutes before class is up. So do you have anything you'd like to add? Anybody would like to, to add or ask here? You have five minutes to do so or else I'm going to stand here looking silly. Yes, Deb. So the, the example Debbie's giving is of, of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and about how they were confident, very clearly saying, you know, if, if we die, we die. At least we'll go to be with God. Uh, my, my, son, my oldest son said something to me one time. Uh, sometimes people like to make up scenarios, and this scenario that was popular for a while was this. If somebody stuck a gun to your head and told you to uh, renounce Christ, would you do it? And my son said, well, you know, if somebody did that, I'm thinking, so what are you threatening me with, eternal life? I'm a faithful child of God, and if you, if you shoot me, 
I'm going to go be with the Lord. So that's not much of a threat, is it? I thought that was a good point. Yes, sir. And, and again, I look at it and I can't say I would have done any better. I really can't, honestly, looking at that. But All right, let's finish up with a word of prayer and then we'll dismiss. Father, we are thankful for the time we had to study this evening. We're thankful, Father, for your word that we can learn and we can be built up in the faith. Lord, we know we need great faith. We know that Satan is extremely active, as he always has been since he has been involved in trying to tempt man away and to take us into eternity with him. We pray, Father, that we will study more diligently with a greater determination to follow you and to rely on you. May we have greater confidence in you. May we exude that confidence in our lives that others may see Christ in us. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you that we have the hope and promise of eternity with you through his blood. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.